You're listening to Top Traders Unplugged, episode number 009, with Marty Birken, president of Don Capital Management. This episode is sponsored by Saxo Bank and Swiss Financial Services. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome to another episode of Top Traders Unplugged. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I really do appreciate it. On today's show, I'm talking to Marty Bergen, the president of Don Capital Management. Don Capital is one of the oldest and most successful systematic managers in the world. And Marty shares his insight on the evolution of Don and talks about some of the key research discoveries that has led them to stay on top of the CTA industry through the last four decades. For those of you who are new to the show, I just want to let you know that you can find all of the show notes, including a full transcript of today's episode on the toptradersunplugged.com website. Now let's get started with part one of my conversation. I hope you will enjoy it. Marty, thank you so much for being uh, with us today. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for having me. Before we dive into today's more structured discussion, if you like, I just want to start out by saying that it's a, it's a really great honor for me uh, to have you on today's uh, podcast. It's very rare in today's world to find someone who not only has been a pioneer in the investment management industry, but who's also been so successful as Don Capital has been, and even more so to find someone who can say that they've done it over a 40-year period. And and if I'm not mistaken, October of this year actually marks the 40th anniversary of Bill's trading career and, and the 30th anniversary of the WMA program. Uh, that's correct. Um, I appreciate the compliment. Uh, of course, most of that is deserved you know, due to Bill Dunn's efforts. And, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just here riding the coattails and trying to continue the success. <laughs> so today's episode is really special. And I know that our listeners will take away a lot of great insights and inspirations from what can only be described as a unique story, both on an individual basis, in the sense that Bill has done something only very few in our field will achieve. But to me, it's also really unique that Bill, yourself, and your team have done it over a period of time that has seen so many changes to the industry that you're operating in, which could never have been imagined back in 1974, and which go to show that there is a great level of robustness in what you do. So perhaps a good starting point for you would be to take us back to the beginning. Tell us the story about how Bill and later yourself got involved in the business and take us through the evolution of the firm and which I guess at its core apply technology to portfolio management. 
Okay, well, I think we only have an hour, so I'll try to give the uh, the reduced version. You take um, as much time as you want. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bill, after he got his degree, you know, he served in the military. He was actually uh, a boot camp instructor at one point. And once he got out of the military, he used his GI Bill to go back to school and get his graduate degree. When he graduated, he went to work for the government and was working in the Washington, D.C. area as what we would call a beltway bandit. In other words, he was working for the defense industry. And he came to the realization that there had to be a better way of making a living. <laughs> <laughs> so he's, he knew that there was a way of looking at markets and using mathematical or statistical data to determine when to buy and when to sell. And his whole philosophy was based on price data. So originally he was looking at equities and you have to remember back in the eighties, you didn't have a personal or back in the seventies when he started this, you didn't have the personal computers. You didn't have the computing power you have today. And it became very clear that the population of equities was much too large to accumulate all the data, process the data, and then act on the data within a reasonable time frame. Sure. So at the time, there was only about a dozen commodity contracts being traded, and he, you know, found futures and thought, well, this is perfect. So in the 70s, he would actually sit down with punch cards, computer punch cards. He and his son, Daniel, who is employed with us today, would punch the cards, enter all the data. They would take it down to either the library or they would rent time on a mainframe and they would run the cards through the system to come up with the prices that they were going to execute on the next given day. And we still have a set of the punch cards that were used in the mid 70s uh, on our wall in our conference room. So it's kind of some nostalgia. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. It's an interesting period of time. And, you know, throughout the years, Bill's, the whole concept is that everything is 100% statistical. You know, we don't use any fundamental data in decision making. And it's all purely based on price data because there's no subjective knowledge in price data. Everybody knows what the price is. We trade in highly liquid markets, so the price is, is being determined every minute of the day. Um, and it's very easy to value where your positions are at any given time. Sure. Uh, and and you know. and did Bill, starting out, you know, at 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 the time where he started, I mean, did he know early on that he wanted to turn this into a business and not just a hobby? And and I'm also curious about how you and I know you have a completely different background. How you got curious about this and and what you saw. In, in, in Bill and, and, and in Don Capital that obviously later made you join them? Yeah, I mean, so when Bill started out, the whole idea behind it was to make money for himself and other people. And he actually went to co-workers and friends and families to put together the first seed uh, capital that was used for trading. Uh, those investors which are, you know, in their 70s, 80s, 
nowadays uh, are still with us today. Yeah. They've been, you know, they joined in back then. They set up a little partnership and started trading. At the time, Bill didn't realize that anybody else was doing such things. Okay. If you think back in the 70s, I mean, it was before the regulatory bodies were even put in place. Yeah. I, can, I guess I can only think of Keith Campbell around the same time doing this. Uh, uh, there, there, there was actually, there was a few other players out there. Yeah, one of Bill's very first clients was somebody that had found two or three people doing what Bill did, and they knew what Bill was doing worked. But of course, Bill didn't know what he was doing worked. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the first sizable investment he got. Mm -hmm. And from that point on, the rest is history. Sure. Uh, I think all along, Bill's idea was to find some other way to make a living besides what he was doing. Sure. Uh, sure. So I think, I think he always planned on this being uh, his future endeavor. Okay. And the way I got involved was I, I'm a CPA by trade and I was in Northern Virginia working for a CPA firm that just happened that one of the founding partners of the firm was Bill's next door neighbor and helped Bill set up all his accounting procedures for the partnerships when he started trading. Yeah. So that's how I got to know Bill. Of course, at that point, Bill had already relocated to Florida. Sure. Uh, I went to work there and the first audit engagement I was on was to audit funds for Dunn Capital Management. And when, when was this in time? I know you joined in 97, but when was this in, in time? Oh, it was in the mid to late eighties. Okay. And, uh, you know, I was a green accountant <laughs> with a couple of years of experience and I worked at that firm until I became a partner. Okay. And once I became a partner, Bill, uh, approached me at, during one summer, uh, and asked if I'd be interested in joining the firm. And my comment to him was that I had a really good thing going, so I wasn't sure that that would really be the right move to make. And his response to me was, that's fine. I'm not sure you can really handle it. <laughs> and here we are today, the president of Don Capital. Yeah, I came down to visit. Of course, I already knew all the players because I had been down many times. Yeah. Um, and it took me about 20 seconds to say yes. Yeah. It, mainly because of the quality of the people I'd be working with. I would, that's, that's, you know, that's the key to Bill's success is that we've always been a small shop. We take a lot of time and effort in picking the pieces that make up the team. And it, it, they all have to fit together. It, and not just from an intellectual standpoint, but also from a personality standpoint. So we have a great group of guys and gals, we all, it's almost like a family. I mean, you work together as much as we do in such a tight knit group, you know, you have to have the personalities that blend. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. 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 And, and you kind of took my next question by, by going down that route. So I appreciate that. Could you tell me, Sort of, if we look at Don Capital today, before we jump to to the next sort of uh, area that I want to talk about. So today you run um, the WMA program. Could you just give us a, an overview of of the uh, AUM in, you have in that program? I know you also do other things with with allocations to other programs, but I guess for today's conversation, we're going to be focusing on the WMA program. Yeah. So. We basically have two different versions of the WMA. The, the original 
WMA is geared to the risk profile that we've always targeted since the inception of the firm, which is a fairly high volatility, high return type program. And what makes us a little different than I think most of the people in the industry is we we target bar. We don't really target volatility, although once you establish your bar, you can kind of back into what the volatility is. Um, when I say VAR, it's basically a value at risk measure. We look at a uh, one month period or 22 days of trading. And when we first started, Bill was always, he had set up the VAR as a 1% chance of losing 20% or more in a given month. And we stuck with that throughout the years until January 2013, which we had a research project where we were trying to see if we could target the VAR according to, to the given market conditions. And you know, that's a hard nut to crack. Sure. But we did come up with something. Uh, it's a proprietary measure of the trendiness of the markets. And currently, we, we changed the VAR target every day based on market conditions. Sure. And given that, 5% of the time, we will be at what used to be the old VAR as a 1% chance of being 20% or more. Now, you know, so our VAR has come down. Sure, sure. Overall, over a long period of time, but you got to understand that's over a large period of time. The volatility is reduced from somewhere in the mid-30s to 23 24%. Sure. Now... The reason we approached it that way is we didn't want to give up any of the upside profitability. And, you know, a lot of people in this industry have reduced the volatility of their programs, but in doing so, they also reduced the upside profit. And by doing what we're doing, we can still maintain the upside profitability without, without, you know, we don't give that away by, even though we are able to reduce our drawdowns. So. It's been a significant change for us. It's only one number in the system, but I think going forward, it's going to be significant in our returns. Sure. The other program we offer is just an institutional version of WMA uh, where we basically have half the bar. Okay. That's the original system. And how much do you run in these uh, in the combined uh, program, you could say? Well, so in the high volatility program, there's $300 million allocated, a little bit more than that. And in the institutional product, which we only opened up to outside investment a few months ago, uh, it's $100 million. Okay, fantastic. But as I said, I know you also do other things. So obviously, the total firm AUM is significantly higher than, than this. Um, I wanted to just sort of the next topic, I just want to briefly touch upon uh, which i think is important for people to understand is a little bit about how you've organized yourself as a company because clearly uh, things are changing in in our industry and technology allow uh, uh you know companies to uh, to do some things in-house some things are done outside how, how have you gone about doing that how do you do everything in-house today or, or do you tend to outsource some of your uh, functions so we handle everything in-house. Part of that is because it's culture of the firm. The other part of it is we really haven't found any outside providers that we would have a comfort level with um, 
that they would do things to the standards that we would expect. Now, that makes it a little difficult sometimes because we are different than most firms. We do all our own administration. We do all our own accounting. We do all of our own, uh, you know, we prepare our statements. We send everything out. We do all our own trading. Um, you know, in this world today where people are looking for third-party administration, you know, there's even talk now about having custodians holding the cash. I think it's a it's a choice that people need to make. One of the things that we're able to do is is things are much more timely. Uh, the investor can deal directly with us. They don't have to go to a third party to have anything done. Sure. The cost is significantly less because you know we don't pass through any cost to the investor to provide these services. They aren't that difficult. Yeah. Um, when I hear the industry or the regulators talking about forcing firms to implement some of these uh, some of these procedures to protect the investor, um, it worries me a little bit because what they're basically doing is taking the choice out of the investor's hands. Sure, uh, I think the regulators should be more focused on looking for the bad actors and handling that type of activity as opposed to putting restrictions on managers and how they do their business, which then creates a more costly environment for the investor is, is our feeling has always been as long as everything is disclosed to the investor, you let the investor make a, you know, in, in intelligent decision based on the information they have at hand. Absolutely. Plus the fact that uh, at the end of the day, you know, investors, they buy people and if they don't trust the people, they shouldn't invest with them in the first place. And uh, I guess a lot of this, regulation and forcing people to use these external uh, service providers which in some cases are fine but it does seem to concentrate a lot of the assets with a few service providers and that in itself creates perhaps other problems that uh, regulators haven't really thought about but anyways that's obviously an entirely different <laughs> discussion but uh, before we dive into the program i wanted to take sort of a big picture view and I, and and you know i i call it you know talking a little bit about the track record because a couple of things from a general point of view we know that the environment for these type of strategies have been somewhat different in the last four years um but of course you know Uh, looking at your track record, you could say that perhaps you anticipated some of this because I know that you've made sort of three key upgrades, uh, if I can call it that, uh, in the last uh, eight years, 2006, 2011, 2013. Um, so perhaps you could talk a little bit about that um, and and what made you uh, go in, in these directions. And, and so people have a better understanding of uh, the track record itself and, and how your program evolved from a big picture point of view? Well, first off, there's no way we could foresee what was coming. That's for <laughs> sure. I mean, uh, I haven't found anybody that knows the future and anybody that tells you they do, they're lying to you. So um, basically our research grows out of knowing that nobody has a holy grail to trading and but there are 
things that can be done or we believe there are things that can be done to improve what you're doing. And as technology has advanced, it's given us the tools and the speed to do things that we weren't able to do back in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. Um, I also think in Dunn's case, we became somewhat complacent. Um, you know, historically, we were one of the top two CTAs in the world with assets under management and even performance. And we we went stagnant. We didn't make a lot of changes to the system for a number of years. And I think we kind of got behind. And in 06, we had the most significant change that we had done. And that was where we moved from Oh geez, it was it was kind of an overview of everything. We went back and just reevaluated the way we approached the markets in total. And before 06, we looked at every market as an individual market and we basically designed our system with a market by market basis. Right. We determined our trading signals each individual market and then we put the whole portfolio together after the fact. In 06, we took a totally different approach. We said, you know, nobody cares about what happens in each individual market. All we care about is what happens to the portfolio as a whole. So we started looking at the markets from a portfolio as a whole basis. And we started designing the models for the whole portfolio. And therefore, every market traded within the same, the same model. And we even did it as far as our parameter selection process on a portfolio whole basis. That made the systems much more robust. And we also expanded from just the financial markets to, you know, all the commodities within the WMA program. Because before that, there wasn't the volume and you didn't have electronic markets. You didn't have the ability to trade real size in a lot of the commodities. But um, and how you know, how how many models were you actually running up until two thousand and six? Well, we basically had three models for each market. Okay, and they were contingency price. So we would determine, you know, before the next day, what prices would buy and sell at, and then if we hit that price. You know, each model had its own price. We would either buy or sell during the day, given those prices. Sure. Um, after the changes, we were trading, you know, upwards of a hundred different models. And what we did is we combined the models and just came up with a strength, either plus one or negative one of that market. And then we would trade on the open of each day. Okay. So we already knew what we wanted based on the the prior day's activities. So a lot of that expansion in terms of of models was really maybe looking at different time frames within the same market to build that confidence or strength as you call it uh within a market before jumping into it. Right. I mean, so trend following basic trend following, you got two parameters, you got time and noise. So instead of just taking one time variable and one noise variable for each market, now we're looking at hundreds of time frames and noise variable. And what the other thing it gave us the ability to do was to kind of migrate between 
shorter term trends to longer term trends given the marketplace. Yeah. And, you know, it, it made us a lot more adaptive. It made us a lot more flexible and we weren't riding on single bets sure. per se. Sure. Um, and then in, and um, I guess it was 2008, we implemented a dynamic risk where instead of uh, targeting our risk based on some historical data, we basically started adjusting our risk every day. Okay. And uh, that was a fairly significant uh, thing that sure. we did. And 2011 yeah. comes along, and 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 uh, that seems to also be a significant uh, uh, year for 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 the trading system. Um, well, I mean, 2008 was the real good year. Sure. Uh, everybody did well. I think 2011. What was nice about it is it kind of separated us from some of the other people in the industry. Um, if you look back from 2006 forward. What you can see as time goes is when we do make these changes in research to the program, it's been validated by the performance. Now, you know, anytime I talk to somebody and say, hey, we got this great change, <laughs> they don't know what kind of research went into it. They don't sure. know what kind of back testing went into it. They don't know if you know what you're doing when you're doing out of sample. You can say you were out of sample, but I know a lot of people that say they were out of sample. But by the time they do the out-of-sample test 10,000 times, it's not out-of-sample anymore. Sure, sure. So, you know, we can say these things, but nobody knows for sure if we really know what we're doing. But if you go back and look at when we started making changes and look at what the performance was from that time forward, I think it's clear that, you know, our changes have been successful changes. Yeah, no, we'll definitely come to that. Uh, but but I agree. Uh, and um, and would you say? I mean, eleven was uh, an interesting year, certainly for for you. But I would was was because you 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 made some changes also in two thousand and eleven, if if I'm not mistaken, where you introduced some additional uh, additional model class or models, if you, if you if you like, is is that well. I think uh, what you're referring to is when we went, we we switched to two algo classes. Okay, sure, that's it. Um, we have an algo class that has a stop loss provision in it. Okay. And I use that term loosely because that is what it does, but it's not a stop loss like most people would think in terms of, of price sure. movement loss. It's not based on price. Um so yeah, we have two different types of algos that they do have some correlation, but not real tightly correlated. And the two of them together definitely provide better performance than either one of them standing on their own. Yeah, uh, that was implemented in that time period. We also added um, the meats to our portfolio. Okay, at that point, you know that's a significant and well significant change because of you know you go from one model class to two that's significant but from a performance standpoint i don't know really how significant it was you know 2011 was a good year for us there's yeah. no question sure especially when it compares to our peers but you know you brought up earlier about the last four years and i mean it's been a tough market for trend following it's been a tough market for us 
um, we were at a new high in December of 2012, but, but being at a new high versus, you know, a significant growth over those, that five years, you know, it hasn't been significant. Yeah. We were at a new high, but it wasn't significant. No, no, uh, it's not like we've done in the past. Sure. It's been a struggle. I think it's been a struggle for everybody. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd, we, I'd like to certainly circle back on that and 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 ask you a little bit about that um, um, because I think that that is an important uh, period to uh, to recognize. But before I do that, I'd love to just finish the this the circle because you mentioned earlier that that uh, a significant change or improvement came about in early 2013 with regards to, you know, um, without limiting the upside, you managed to find things that could reduce um, the the downside. Right. So that's what we call the adaptive risk profile. And when I was explaining it before is now instead of targeting the same bar every single day and adjusting according to that target, we now adjust the bar that we're targeting every single day. Mm-hmm. And basically we're looking at, you know, the market volatilities and the correlations that kind of is what we're using as size positions. But when we look at the, the, what we call the ARP or adaptive risk profile, what we're looking at is whether it's a good environment for trend following or not. Yeah. And the better the environment, the higher the targeting mechanism is, the lower our, the, the lower that we determine the trendiness of the market to be, the lower we, we adjust our target. Sure. sure. And as an example, currently, uh, we're using, we're trading at a bar of about 14. Uh, and like I said, when we're at the top, we're trading at a bar of 20 and we should get there about 5% of the time going forward. Yeah. Um, you know, this would be a reduced trending market. And that number, is that derived from looking at all the markets in the portfolio and measuring the trend strength by market and aggregating that into a number or, or how sort of, you know, philosophically basically, would you? Yeah, basically we're looking at three things. We're looking at, you know, each market, whether it's determined that it's, trending or not, and then the correlation of that to other markets and the volatility of that given market. Okay. And you also, you, you mentioned that you, you expanded the number of markets, um, you know, back in, in, in 2006. How many markets do you actually trade now? Um, 53 markets. Okay. So that stayed relatively stable in the last... Uh, yeah, that we've added the, we added the meats sure. and we dropped... Uh, we dropped OJ out, um, and basically, we we look for two different things. Well, three different things. We want to we want a market that's traded on a regulatory regula, uh, regulated exchange. Yeah, we're looking for markets that have high volume, consistent volume over time. Yeah, and we're looking for markets that are uncorrelated to what our current portfolio is. Sure. So if it can give us diversification, it can be traded with low risk and the viability of being able to 
get out of the position when needed. If all three of those things are, are aligned, then we can add that market to the portfolio. Sure. And the, and the 53 markets, they cover then all sectors. So you're sort of fully diversified. Um, I guess that's, you know, compared to many of the large managers where they seem to be more concentrated in financials. You, I guess you, you are fully diversified over, over all the sectors. Oh yeah. So we, we got 23% allocation just to agricultures. Yeah. Wow. I think what happens with a lot of the big traders is we only have a 13% allocation to currencies. Yeah. And I think the larger managers are forced to trade more and more in the currency markets because that's the biggest market in the world. Sure. So, but uh, I mean, in a sense, it, it goes back to, to the point you were raising before where you were starting to talk about the last four or five years and, you know, in a sense, so I'd love to hear your opinion about it. And that is, has the last four or five years been all about sector weights, meaning that the people who have been overweight in equities tend to have done much better than the people who are fully diversified? With you, maybe be the exception to that rule because you are diversified and you have done well. Yeah, I, I think especially in this year and last year, uh, probably the last three years, if you were overweight, long equities, you had an advantage over most of the other players. Yeah. Um, I will say that in 2013, which we had a very good year, we made over 30%. Those profits were generated in, in the financial markets okay. for, for the most part. Yeah. Um, 2011, people look at us and say, oh, well, you know, you must have made all your money in agriculture because everybody else had a tough year. <laughs> Actually, no, that's not when we've made our money. Yeah. So it's not, it doesn't, it's not sector allocation. I mean, sector allocation allows us to take on a little more risk sometimes because we have a more diversified type portfolio. But we're truly doing something different and I don't know exactly what it is we're doing differently because I have no idea what, how other people's systems are operating. Sure. All that I know is what we're doing. And I know that the correlation in the last several years has been dipping yeah. between us and other trend followers. But I can assure you, we're still doing 100% trend following. Yes. I mean, this is obviously the interesting bit because a lot of people have kind of diverted away from, from, from trend following. So, uh, and w when doing trend following, you said you have sort of two algos, uh, groups, um, just, just again, ballpark. How are they different? I mean, is there anything is, for example, I'm just using this as an example. Some people, you know, use moving averages, uh, as a way of identifying, um, you know, trends. Some people use price breakout channels. I mean, is that the kind of difference from an overall, you know, design point of view? Uh, just, just looking at the algos. Well, so, I mean, let's just look at what happens and that would, you know, I can show you the difference of the two pretty clearly. I mean, one of the original algo, which was something Bill designed in, you know, the seventies, we still trade the original system. Okay. Uh, that system is always in the market. Mm -hmm. It's either long or short. It's never out. Okay. It's a full reversal program. The other algo 
is an algo that is either long, short, or flat. Okay. The second algo also has, like I said, a function in it that acts as a stop loss function. Right. So that's really the difference between those two algos. The entry and exit points, you know, that's, yeah, they're different, but, you know, everybody's is different. And do the algorithms rely on a feed of sort of intraday data or, or are they just sort of end of day data uh, reliant? Uh, we're purely looking at high lows and close. Okay. And when, um, I mean, you talked about sort of position sizing and, and, and adjustments and, and trend strength determining, you know, how con convinced the models uh, are. How does that work? Because that implies, I guess, that you would, maybe not every day, but that you would adjust your positions once you're in, in a trade, that it's not a static position size. Right. So at the end of every day, we determine what position we want to be in given the data. We look at the positions we're currently in, and then we have a, a small threshold so that we're not buying one lot, selling one lot, sure. buying one lot, selling one lot. Um, and we adjust every day. Interesting. And so, um, so you mentioned you have the, the, uh, the two models and in terms of other performance drivers in, in your system, would you say that time horizon or system design, meaning your algos being very different from others? I mean, is there any of that you think that that plays a role in, in, in the performance, which clearly has been superior to uh, many of, of, of your peers? Um, <clears throat> I'm convinced it's risk management and portfolio development. Okay. I, you know, I find it hard to believe that the actual algos in trim following are really that much different than what everybody else is doing. Yeah. But I could be wrong. <laughs> No, I mean, I think, I mean, I, th I think there's certainly a lot of uh, things to be said about, you know, if you can identify the markets that are trending and getting a, a full position, so to speak, in those markets, at the same time, not having a full position in the market that are stuck in ranges. I mean, I do think that that has a significant impact on, on performance. And that, in a sense, is very much sort of the, the holy grail of, of what, uh, what we are all trying to do. Yeah, the only thing is you got to be careful. So I agree with you, and I think the the key there is ready to learn more about the world's top traders. Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.